Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Around 1334 BCE, the Egyptian government was in trouble. The pharaoh, Tutankhamun, had died early. Aged 19, the king had perished without heir, and without a plan for succession. Now, members of the court had to choose a path. Who would be the next ruler, and how would they ascend? Meanwhile, the queen of Egypt, Ankh-Esen-Amun, had her own troubles. Her husband, the major source of her political power, was gone. Moving forward, she would need to adjust to political circumstances. How she did so is a curious tale. Salam alaikum, peace be upon you. Welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 154, Dacha Munzu, aka Ta Chemet Nesu. Today, we go beyond the borders of Egypt. In the north, strange events are unfolding. A great empire is about to get involved in Egyptian royal politics. Once again, we are dealing with the Hittites. This episode comes to you on behalf of Roger, Roland, and Powell, who donated to the show. Folks, you are too generous. Thank you kindly. May Ra, the dazzling sun disk of all lands, and the storm god of Hati, bless you with light and fertility. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me. On with the narrative. Oh, before I begin there is a small disclaimer. The dates for these events are uncertain. The Daka Munzu affair, quote-unquote, is a story where timing and chronology is hard to confirm. Different scholars give different interpretations of these events, and they all have different timelines. Depending on the source, the date for this event can vary by years, or even a decade. Please bear that in mind as we begin. Throughout this episode, I will use dates like 1334 BCE. But as always, those are rough, guidelines at best. Nothing is certain, everything could change. Cool? Cool. The year was 1334 BCE, give or take. For a moment, Egypt lacked a king. Nebkeperu-Ra Tutankhamun was dead. And while the pharaoh lay in state undergoing mummification, the court needed an heir. What would they do? This next chapter is notoriously complicated. In terms of evidence, there is only a tiny shred of material. And what we do have is unreliable at best. What's more, this tale involves two major kingdoms, 
two distinct languages, and two governments, each with their own priorities and concerns. As a result, historians are working in the dark here a lot more than usual. Debates can be fierce, rivalries can develop around these questions. Entire historical narratives can break on the walls of this problem. So, what's the big deal? To put it briefly, we have a story. It comes from the archives of Hatti, the Hittite kingdom. At some point, one of the Hittite rulers created a history of his father's reign. This record survives in pieces, and among the fragments, we have references to a strange political incident. The short version goes as follows. Allegedly, a queen of Egypt wrote to the king of Hatti. The queen said that her husband, a pharaoh, had died, and she did not have a son. But the Hittite king had many sons, and if he would send a prince, the queen of Egypt would marry him. In other words, this queen offered to take a Hittite male as her husband. He would be the next pharaoh. What happened next is murky, and we will explore it. But as you can guess, this damaged, fragmentary record is confusing. Why would the Queen of Egypt want a Hittite prince for a husband? Who was the pharaoh that had died? And can we trust the Hittite record in the first place? I'm not going to do a full academic deep dive on this one, but we can do our best to get a sense of what might have happened and how we can interpret it. Most of this story focuses on the Hittites. In fact, our tale begins with Superluliuma, the great king of the land of Hatti, the beloved of the storm god, conqueror of cities and kingdoms, who had led his armies to many victories. At least, that's the picture we get from Hittite records. The royal annals, written down and kept in Hittite archives, present a powerful image of Superluliuma, the great king, the glorious, the all-powerful, all-conquering master of Hatti. Of course, there are many reasons to question the Hittite annals. They exaggerate victories, downplay defeats, and emphasize the accomplishments of the rulers above all. Like most ancient records, including the Egyptian ones, Hittite annals are a mix of genuine facts, poetic license, and political propaganda. And yet, we do have a curious incident in the reign of Superluliuma, an event so out there, so bizarre, that it is hard to ignore. You see, in the later years of his reign, the great king of Hatti dealt with a strange situation. This is where our story begins. Around 1334, give or take, Superluliuma was on campaign. He and his army were in northern Syria. They were laying siege to a city, the city of Karkemish. Karkemish was a major town. It lay on the west bank of the Euphrates River, and served as a major hub for trade and travel. The city was important. In the past, even the pharaohs had come to Karkemish. Egyptian kings had visited the town on campaign, and they erected monuments or stelae to their glory. Karkemish was a target, a valuable centre for strategic and economic gain. Basically, it was a great prize. As you can imagine, the king of the land of Hatti 
wanted Karkemish for himself. While mopping up his enemies, Supaluliuma came to this town. The great king laid siege to the city. His warriors camped before the walls, and they began isolating the people. Soon, the city was under siege. If all went to plan, Karkemish would surrender quickly. If not, the war might drag on for a few months. Either way, Supaluliuma and his troops settled in to wait. Hopefully, the siege would not be too boring. Unexpectedly, a messenger arrived in the camp. There was news from distant lands. Not from Hatti. Rather, this message came from Egypt. The land of the Nile, the land of the pharaohs. This messenger brought word, but not from the pharaoh, from his wife. The message came from a lady called Daka Munzu. This is not a name, it is a title. Daka Munzu is the Hittite version for an Egyptian phrase. That phrase is Ta Chemet Nesu, the king's great wife. Basically, it refers to the chief or supreme wife of the pharaoh. Today, we might call her the queen, but you get the idea. Ta Chemet Nesu, aka Daka Munzu, was the most powerful woman in Egypt's royal court. I will come back to the identity of this queen later. For now, let's focus on the main question. Why was Egypt's ruling lady writing to Superlilyuma? As the story goes, the queen had a message. She wrote a letter to the king of Hatti with a story of her own. She said, quote, My husband has died, and I have no son. They say that you, Superlilyuma, have many sons. If you give me one of your sons, he will become my husband. I do not wish to choose a subject of mine and make him my husband. I am afraid. End quote. Huh. The message was simple, but strange. Apparently, Egypt's queen, the Tahemet Nesu, was facing a crisis. Her husband, the pharaoh, had died, and she needed a new spouse. But the queen did not want to marry someone from her court. Instead, she asked Sipaluliuma to send his son a prince. Sipaluliuma was famously fertile. If he could spare one son, the queen of Egypt would take him as her husband. And well, that prince would become the king of Egypt. This proposal was remarkable. And it wasn't necessarily good news. The Hittites were not especially friendly with Egypt. Recently, both empires had raided one another's territories. Egyptian soldiers had attacked Hittite towns, and the Hittites had attacked some of Egypt's. For years, Superluliuma had been undermining the pharaoh's influence in the region. Now, the queen of Egypt was asking Hatti for a marriage? This was weird. As you can imagine, Superluliuma was immediately suspicious. Faced with an unexpected and unprecedented request, the king had two options. First, he could accept the proposal immediately and begin preparations. Or, he could wait a little bit, figure out what was happening, and then decide his response. The story gives us his choice. Quote, When Superluliuma heard this message, he gathered the great ones for counsel. He said to them, Nothing like this has ever happened to me in my whole life. Thus, my father sent a high official, 
Hatushaziti to Egypt with an order. The king said to Hatushaziti, Go, bring back the true story. Maybe they are trying to deceive me. Maybe they do have a son of their lord. Bring back the truth. End quote. Sipaluliumar gathered his council, the great ones, to discuss the proposal. Clearly, this was a delicate situation. If the queen of Egypt was lying, then the Hittites had to avoid a trap. But if she was telling the truth, the Hittites had to decide, was it worth it? Naturally, Sipaluliumar took a cautious approach to the situation. Instead of agreeing or disagreeing, the king of Hatti chose to investigate. He dispatched an official, a representative, to visit Egypt and discover the truth. Maybe there was a prince in Egypt ready to become the pharaoh. Or maybe this unusual situation was genuine. Before he could act and risk the life of a son, Sipaluliuma wanted confirmation. So, the Hittite official, Hatusha Ziti, set out for Egypt. With that, the story paused. The Hittite messenger would have to travel to Egypt, ascertain the truth, and then travel back. That would take time, several weeks at least, several months at most. So, Superluliuma dispatched his official. Then, life went back to normal. While he waited, the king of Hatti continued his siege. Karkemish was still standing. Now, it was time to conquer. Apparently, the siege lasted seven full days, and on the eighth day, the king's army broke through. Sipaluliuma captured Karkemish, and his army looted the town. Mostly. In this account, the king of Hatti allowed his soldiers to ransack the city, but he prevented them from touching any temples. The story says, Supaluliuma removed the people, the silver, the gold, and bronze from the lower town. But on the high fortress, or citadel, he let no one into the temples of Kubaba and Lama. He did not intrude into any of the temples, since he feared the gods. The king bowed to Kubaba and Lama, and he gave something. Maybe offerings? End quote. So the king of Hatti conquered Karkermish, and he plundered most of it. But Supaluliuma was a great king, and he respected the gods. When his troops reached the citadel, the king forbade anyone to damage the temples. Instead, Supaluliuma visited the local gods and did them honour. Whether this is true, we have no way of knowing. But the story establishes Superluliuma as a just, honourable ruler, one who respected the deities. Anyway, weeks passed, winter came and went. In the spring, Superluliuma's messenger returned at last from Egypt. He was not alone. When Hatushaziti came back, he brought an Egyptian with him. Quote, when spring arrived, Hatushaziti came back from Egypt, and the messenger of Egypt, Lord Hani, came with him. Hani brought a message from the Queen of Egypt, who wrote to Supaluliuma again. The Queen said, Why did you say, they deceive me in that way? If I had a son, would I have told a foreigner about my predicament? You did not believe me, and have dared to speak this way to me? My husband has died, and I have no son. 
I do not wish to take one of my subjects and make him my husband. I have written to no other kingdom, only to you. They say you have many sons. Well, give me one of them. To me, he will be a husband, but in Egypt, he will be king. End quote. Hmm, the queen was insistent. Her husband had died, she had no son, and she did not want to marry a subject. Furthermore, this Tahemet Nesu, or Dachamunzu, was offended by Sibiloliuma's doubt. Why would she lie about something like that? If she had a son, or her husband still lived, why would she pretend they did not? And why would she write to a foreigner about her situation? If things were fine, she would not embarrass herself by asking for help. So this Dachamunzu was persistent. She maintained her honesty. Sipololiomar was intrigued, and he spoke with the Egyptian ambassador. The queen's servant was a man named Hani. We don't know much about him, but we do know that Hani was a royal messenger around this time. He shows up a couple of times in the Amana letters, where he seems to be a diplomat or representative of the pharaoh. Hani travelled a lot, visiting cities and rulers in Canaan and Syria. So apparently, the Queen of Egypt had sent an experienced diplomat to represent her case. Nevertheless, Supaluliuma was still unsure, so he spoke with the ambassador. The king asked Hani why he should trust this request. After all, the Egyptians and Hittites had fought against one another. Recently, Egyptians had raided a small kingdom in Syria, one that gave loyalty to the Hittites. In retaliation, Sipololiuma's troops had attacked Egyptian territory. So even if the two empires were not technically at war, they were not friendly. Why should Sipololiuma trust this request? And why would Egypt ask for a Hittite prince? Hani's reply was simple. Quote, then Hani spoke to Sipololiuma, saying, Oh my lord, this situation is humiliating for our land. If we had a son of the king, any son at all, would we have come to a foreign land and asked for a lord to rule us? Our lord, Nebchororia, has died. He had no son. Our lord's wife is childless. So, we are seeking a son of you, our lord, for the kingship of Egypt. And for the woman, our lady, we seek your son as her husband. We went to no other land. We only came here. Please, O lord. Give us one of your sons. End quote. So the diplomat Hani gave the same story as the queen. The pharaoh, someone called Nebchururia, had died. He left no heir. The queen was alone. Hani emphasized the difficulty and embarrassment of their situation. Like the queen, he insisted, the Egyptians had no reason to lie about this. If their pharaoh was alive, or if they had a prince, they would have chosen that route. But desperate times called for desperate measures. They needed a prince of Hatti. What would Supaluliuma do? What indeed? After the break, we dive into the climax of this tale. How Supaluliuma responded to Egypt's request, and the consequences of his decision. Then, we explore the questions around the story. Who was this queen that made the request? Who was the king that had died without heir? And what on earth was happening in Egypt? 
Those questions and more after the break. See you in a moment. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. By contrasting both the experiences of contemporaries and the conclusions of historians, Grey History dives into the detail and unpacks one of the most important and disputed events in human history. From a revolution based on hope and liberty to its descent into the infamous Reign of Terror, there's plenty to discuss and plenty of grey to explore. One can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So if you're looking for your next long-form, binge-worthy history podcast, one recommended by universities and loved by enthusiasts, then check out Grey History, the French Revolution today. Or simply search for the French Revolution. In 1334 BCE, maybe, King Supaluliuma was on campaign. While conducting a siege, the Lord of Hatti received a message. Egypt's queen, the Tahemet Nesu, or Dachamunzu, was in trouble. She needed help, and she was willing to accept a foreigner if necessary. The queen wrote to Supaluliuma, requesting a prince to become her new husband. The request was unprecedented and baffling, and the king of Hatti took a while to respond. First, he sent a diplomat to investigate the situation. Were the Egyptians lying? Well, it didn't seem so. The Hittite diplomat returned and confirmed the truth of the queen's words. Apparently, Egypt's king had died, there was no heir, and the political situation was tense. So, Depending on their response, the Hittites might benefit enormously. What did Supaluliuma do? Well, the king of Hatti decided to accept this request. He would send a prince to marry the queen of Egypt. Why did he do this? Well, the Hittite annals give two explanations. In one version, Supaluliuma agreed to the request, quote, because he, the king, was kind-hearted, he granted the woman's wish and set about choosing the son he would send. End quote. So one version says that Sipaluliuma acted out of mercy and his sympathy for a poor widowed woman, quote unquote. Hmm. Doesn't sound like the Sipaluliuma we know, the usurping, manipulative, all-conquering warlord. It sounds a bit too generous for him. The other explanation is more political. In this version, Sipaluliuma agrees to the request as a matter of diplomacy. Quote, the king asked for the tablet of the treaty between Egypt and Hatti. This tablet told how the storm god made a treaty between the lands of Egypt and Hatti, and how they remained on friendly terms with one another. And when the king had read this tablet aloud before the ambassadors, Sipaluliuma spoke to them. He said, Hatti and Egypt have been friends a long time. Now, this event has taken place between us. Thus, Hatti and Egypt will continue being friends. End quote. So in this version, the king agreed for diplomatic reasons. 
the two kingdoms had been friendly in the past. They could strengthen that friendship with a marriage. Superluliuma agreed to the request. He would choose a prince and send him to Egypt. The son he chose was named Zananza. We do not know much about him, but he must have been a younger son, someone that Superluliuma could afford to lose. You see, the prince was going on a one-way trip. If he arrived in Egypt safely and became the king, he would live in that country from now on. If not, if the whole thing was a trap, well, sorry kid. Either way, Zananza was not coming home. But, like a dutiful son, he headed off into the unknown. I wonder how he felt about these events. The next part of the story is lost. Unfortunately, the tablets recording these events break off just at this point. Typical. When the fragments resume their story, time and events have moved forwards. And we learn afterwards what happened to the prince. Quote, Then the people of Egypt killed Zananza, and they sent word that Zananza died. When my father, Subululiuma, heard of this, he began to lament for his son and to the gods. Subululiuma said, O gods, I did them no harm, yet the people of Egypt did this to me. End quote. So apparently Zananza died, either en route or in Egypt itself, the prince was struck down. The cause is unclear. Superluliuma blamed the Egyptians, saying they had killed the prince. And that's the version that makes it into the Hittite annals. That might be true. But it's also possible that Zananza died of natural causes, like a disease. Either way, the death was a political catastrophe. Zananza's passing was the treachery Superluliuma had feared. When the Egyptians first sent their request, he distrusted their intentions. Now, the death of the prince, natural or otherwise, seemed to confirm his belief. The king's fury was immense, and he immediately went to war. Superluliuma gathered an army and attacked Egyptian territory. We do not know which territories they were, but presumably the Hittites invaded parts of Syria or Canaan. Areas that officially gave loyalty to the pharaoh. Now, Sipololiuma attacked the Egyptian empire. Quote, The king let his anger run away with him. He went to war against Egypt, and he attacked them. Sipololiuma destroyed the foot soldiers and the charioteers of the country of Egypt. The storm god of Hatti, my lord, supported Sipololiuma. He vanquished the soldiers and charioteers of the country of Egypt. End quote. So the king of the land of Hatti was infuriated, and he threw away any ideas of friendship with Egypt or its rulers. The Hittites began to attack territories in the north, and apparently their onslaught was successful. The troops of Egypt, or at least Egypt's vassals, collapsed. The Hittites were victorious. Now this is all we hear about from the Hittite annals, but it is the start of a long and complicated story. The death, or murder, of Prince Zananza triggered a conflict, a conflict that would persist on and off for decades. In hindsight, it is easy to see this as a turning point for Egyptian-Hittite relations. They had been friendly occasionally in the past, and they had also been at odds. 
Now, events had sparked a fire that would burn across the region. That fire would involve many battles, many campaigns, and it would culminate in the most famous battle of all, the Battle of Kadesh. But that is a story for another day. For now, we must pause our narrative and try to understand what on earth was happening here. The story presents many problems and questions. Firstly, who was the Egyptian queen? And who was her husband, the pharaoh that died without a son? As you can imagine, these questions do not have an easy answer. The problems begin with names. Our sources are Hittite, so they are written in a different language. And when it came to the names, Hittite authors adapted the Egyptian words to their own sensibilities. For scholars, this adds a layer of translation, and some details might be confused or lost. So there is some doubt about the identities. The queen is called Dakamunzu, but as we know, that isn't a name. It is the Hittite rendering of Tahemet Nesu, the king's great wife. This is the standard title for a queen in the 18th dynasty. So, right out the gate, we are dealing with a royal lady, but one who is anonymous. She is identified by her title, but not by her name. As a result, our pool of suspects grows slightly larger than expected. So the queen is unknown, but what about the king? Again, that isn't as easy as you'd think. The Hittite authors wrote the name as Nibhururia. Depending on the scholar and the translation, this can vary in subtle ways. But however you write it, there are two pharaohs that would fit this name. The first candidate is Tutankhamun whose royal name was neb ra That sounds pretty similar to the Hittite version. With a little bit of lost in translation, you could imagine how neb ra became neb So that is a strong possibility. And many scholars think, from the name alone, that King Tutankhamun is the best candidate for the pharaoh. However, there is a challenger. Another pharaoh bearing the name Nefer-Keperu-Ra. That is the identity of King Akhenaten, Tutankhamun's predecessor, possibly his father, the controversial heretic king. Akhenaten could be this mysterious king. His throne name was Nefer-Keperu-Ra, and with a bit of translating, you could see how that might become Nibkaruria in the Hittite. So, it is possible that Akhenaten is our candidate. Both of these pharaohs have similar names, and either one could be Nebchururia. Maybe Tutankhamun is more likely, but it's not 100% certain. So, if we can't solve it on the names, we have to look at the context. Here, it gets tricky. The Hittite records clearly state the Egyptian pharaoh died without an heir. The queen insisted, quote, I have no son. And Supaluliuma sent a diplomat to check this claim. The king of Hatti was suspicious. Fair enough. If the dead pharaoh had an heir, that prince would be a threat. So before he did anything, Supaluliuma investigated. 
and apparently his diplomat confirmed the situation. The pharaoh was dead, there was no heir, and the queen did not have a son. That was the confirmation Supilulyuma desired. Only when he had that confirmation did he respond to the request. So it seems pretty clear, the pharaoh had no son. Now, we do know with 100% certainty that King Tutankhamun died without an heir. Every bit of information surviving from his reign seems to agree with that. There was no prince when Tutankhamun died. So at the very least, Tutankhamun does fit the situation. The young king died, and his wife, Ankesenamun, had no son. That seems straightforward. Case closed, right? Well, maybe not. Scholars argue over certain details of the story. The main disagreement is the pharaoh. Was Nebchururia really the young Tutankhamun? Or did these events happen prior to his reign? Maybe the pharaoh who died without a son was somebody else. Suffice to say, this debate is complicated, and historians have not reached a consensus. So I won't get too detailed here. Perhaps one day there will be more certainty. But for now, let me just summarize the main ideas. Number one. What if the dead pharaoh was Akhenaten? Several scholars have suggested that Akhenaten was the deceased Nebchururia. As I mentioned earlier, the name of this king, Nefer-Keperu-Ra, might conceivably get twisted into Nebchururia. And on the surface, it is possible that Akhenaten died without a son. He had already tried one tactic when he promoted that chap Smenkare as a co-regent, episode 127. At the very least, it is possible that Akhenaten was scrambling to find an heir. And when he died, his widow might have tried a novel tactic. However, there is a big problem with this idea. If the Egyptian court did not have a prince, if there was not a suitable candidate, then how on earth did Tutankhamun come to power? All of the available evidence, texts, art, even DNA, seems to agree that young Tutankhamun was a relative, somehow, of Akhenaten. Maybe he was a son of the king, maybe a nephew, or a cousin. However you look at it, the evidence does seem to say Tutankhamun was a member of the royal bloodline. When Akhenaten died, the young boy should have been a candidate. With that in mind, it is hard to believe that, somehow, the Queen of Egypt overlooked Tutankhamun as an heir. Even if she did not want to marry him, that boy was a complication. Surely, the Egyptians would prefer Tutankhamun over a foreigner. And what's more, the Hittites would surely find out young Tutankhamun existed. King Sipiluliuma sent a diplomat to investigate the situation. Logically, if Tutankhamun was waiting around, they would have found out about that. To be fair, we are making a lot of assumptions there. We do not know what kind of politicking or manipulation was happening in the court. But the main point is valid. All our evidence points to young Tutankhamun as a member of the Egyptian royal house. If the dead king was Akhenaten, why would they ignore this child? And why would they invite a foreigner instead of him? So Akhenaten is a possibility, but the hypothesis has a massive hole in it, and to date, 
no one has satisfactorily explained that problem. The second candidate is Smenk Kare. Remember him? That strange, elusive figure who turned up late in Akhenaten's reign. Smenk Kare married a princess, the princess Merit Aten, and the two became co-regents, maybe, for Akhenaten and Nefertiti. Smenk Kare is curious. We know almost nothing about them. Well, there might be an explanation for that. Smenk Kare seems to appear out of nowhere. What if that's because he was foreign? What if Smenk Kare was the Prince of Hatti? It is possible that the Hittite Prince Zananza and the strange Smenk Kare are the same person. This is the argument put forth by Marc Gabold, professor of Egyptology at Montpellier University in France. In two books, 2015's Tutankhamun and 1998's Dakanathan a Tutankhamun, Gabold argues that Smenkare might be the Hittite prince, the one who travelled to Egypt and died sometime after. Again, it is a complicated argument. Based on artefacts from Egypt and Syria, Gabold builds a case that maybe the Hittite prince did arrive in Egypt, he did become king, and then somehow he died. This is a bold proposal, but it does have merit. Unfortunately, the Smenkare idea hits the same hurdle as the Akhenaten hypothesis. If the Hittite prince was Smenkare, why did the Egyptians and the Hittites ignore young Tutankhamun? Also, the proposal raises additional questions. The Hittite texts are pretty clear that this Egyptian woman was Tahemet Nesu, the king's great wife. But, as far as we can tell, Smenkare's wife, Merit Aten, only gained that title after she married. If Smenkare was the Hittite prince, why was Merit Aten referred to as a Tahemet Nesu? There might be various explanations for this, but it seems like a problem. That got a little bit complicated. Basically, the Smenkare idea has merit, but it also has gaps. And to date, most Egyptologists seem to disagree with this particular idea. That doesn't mean it's wrong, just that current evidence is insufficient. Maybe the future will bring new material. For now, we have to leave it as a maybe. So there are different options for the dead pharaoh. Traditionally, Egyptologists go with Tutankhamun. We know that Tutankhamun was a member of the royal house, and we know that he died without a son or heir. Also, his name, Neb Keperura, fits the one found in Hittite records. On the balance of probability, he seems like the best candidate. Nevertheless, the alternatives are possible, but it's complicated, and so far, no scholar has satisfactorily resolved every question and problem. Imagine a courtroom with a prosecution and defence. If the lawyers stood up to argue their respective candidates, I think the jury would struggle to reach an answer. Maybe they would choose Tutankhamun as the most likely, but could anyone prove it beyond reasonable doubt? So far, no. 
In 2021, this podcast will stick with the classic interpretation. I am working on the assumption that Nebchururia, the king who died without heir, was none other than Nebkeberura, Tutankhamun. His widow, the king's great wife, was Ankesen Amun. And it was she who wrote a letter to the Hittite ruler. For whatever reason, Ankesen Amun tried to avoid marrying one of her servants, quote-unquote, and she went for a foreigner to be her new king. This brings us to the second big question. What on earth was the queen trying to achieve? I won't give you the runaround. There is no real answer to that question. If I had to guess, I might say that Ankesen Amun was afraid for her political position. With Tutankhamun dead, and no other males, the young queen was in danger of losing power. But if she married a foreigner, that might be a way to maintain control. A Hittite prince, whoever he was, would be far from home. Politically, he would be isolated and alone. That would make him an easy puppet. Hypothetically, the Queen of Egypt could rule through her husband, and manipulate the Hittite to her own advantage. By contrast, a local prince, say a high-ranking courtier, they would have their own connections, their own power base. If Ankes and Amun wanted to rule, she would find it much harder to control someone local. With that in mind, it's possible that this foreign gamble was a way for Ankes and Amun to maintain power. Now, some of you may be thinking, Ankes and Amun wouldn't do that. Fair enough. In the modern world, Ankes and Amun appears to be a sympathetic and supportive figure, a dutiful wife for her husband. That's the picture we get from art, from royal paintings, statues, and texts. The surviving evidence depicts Ankes and Amun as the king's wife. She supports Tutankhamun, attends to his needs, and generally reinforces his power. On that basis, it is easy to imagine the young queen as a kindly supporting player. However, there is a big gap here. The surviving evidence paints a hyper-curated image of Angus and Amun. Our sources are royal and carefully designed. They present a specific idea of the queen but they tell us nothing about her personality, the mind behind the art. Was Ankes and Amun a dutiful, supportive wife, like the propaganda suggests? Or was she more active, more influential than we realize? On current evidence, it is impossible to say. I could easily stray into historical fiction if I argued it one way or another. The point is, we really don't know anything about Ankes and Amun as a person. It is possible the queen did this for her own political benefit. If Ankes and Amun married a foreigner, she might guarantee some influence and authority. By contrast, if she married a local, that servant would probably be more of a challenge. That could be an explanation for what was happening. Alternatively, Ankes and Amun could have been genuinely afraid. If King Tutankhamun had died unexpectedly, perhaps the queen was afraid of instability. If there was a gap, high-ranking officials might try to seize power. If there were multiple factions, maybe a civil war could break out. If that was happening, 
the queen may have thought a foreigner was a good bet. The Hittite prince would, at the very least, be royal, the son of a king, so he would have some legitimacy. Also, if there was a foreigner as the pharaoh, that might stop rival factions from usurping the throne. The Hittite prince would be a figurehead with no real power, but his presence might prevent a civil war. Again, this is total speculation on my part, but it's possible that Ankes and Amun, or whichever queen it was, wanted to maintain peace and stability. We can't rule that out specifically. Unfortunately, it's impossible to know what the queen was trying to do. For now, our evidence is too fragmentary, too one-sided, and too vague. According to the Hittite records, the queen of Egypt, the Dacha Munzu, was afraid, quote-unquote. She didn't want to marry a servant, and she was willing to go abroad to find a new husband. But how much of this was true? How much was misinterpreted by the Hittites? And what was the queen really trying to achieve? These questions remain frustratingly blank. Historians can speculate based on pieces of evidence. But for now, the Dacha Munzu affair is a genuine historical mystery. We have a few tantalizing clues, but the big picture eludes us. What does it all mean? The game is still afoot. Around 1334 BCE, the Egyptian court was unstable. The king, Tutankhamun, was dead. He had no son. His widow, Queen Ankesen Amun, was alone. We don't know what happened, not for certain. But it seems like Ankesen Amun tried an unorthodox solution. She wrote to the king of Hatti, the ruler of the Hittites, and she asked him to send her a prince. A royal son from another kingdom would be Ankesen Amun's new husband. He would become king, and she would continue to rule. The king of Hatti, Subaluliuma, dispatched a son, a prince named Zananza. The prince set out for Egypt, and it is possible he arrived in the Nile Valley. However, at some point, Zananza died. Whether by natural causes or murder, the Hittite prince failed to establish himself. When news of this death reached the Hittite king, Suppaluliuma was enraged. He went to war, attacking Egyptian towns in Syria and Canaan. With this, a period of conflict began in the region. It would be a problem for years to come. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones 
who get it done.